Well, tonight we're going to be speaking about the job guarantee and what we're going to do first of all and um, before we go into the real kind of specifics and detail of how this would work in scotland is we're going to hear from two economists that we've interviewed previously um, about the job guarantee and they're going to talk about it from this kind of mmt perspective and also talk about it from america um, it's a brilliant little seven minutes and then we'll get stuck into this conversation with kieran and cameron but thanks everyone for joining us and I hope you're going to enjoy tonight's show. I should define what a job guarantee is. I keep talking about it, but I'm not sure how much your viewers would know it. So it's a, uh, at least in the U.S. context, the job guarantee is a program uh, that MMTers have been advocating for where, uh, you know, the government offers a job to anyone and everyone who's willing and able to work for, a, you know, fixed wage and benefit plus benefits. And that effectively puts a, the floor under wages so it effectively creates a minimum wage um, because if you have unemployment you know you, your minimum wage is basically zero right so uh, it creates an effective minimum wage and it um, you know the funding is federal but it can be um, decentralized where local governments and NGOs can be involved in the implementation uh, but the good thing is that it automatically expands if you are in a situation like COVID or a recession because there are now more unemployed workers who are eligible for the job guarantee or who want to work in the job guarantee. Um, and then in a recovery, the opposite happens. People find work in the private sector and the pool shrinks. So in that case, you don't even need to pass uh, bill and further bill for people to get a job. The job guarantee ensures that as long as there are unemployed people, you know, this federal spending will expand. Um, or if there's more unemployed people, the federal spending would automatically expand and then uh, and vice versa. So it's an automatic stabilizer for the economy. Yeah, I, I mean, this is something that I've written about for Modern Money Scotland with, with my colleague Cameron there. So it's something that I feel very passionate about. And, and I am going to bring it forward to the SNP conference, which is coming up as well, that we run a pilot here in Scotland. That's my plan. Um, so, yeah, would you would you like to comment on the job guarantee scheme? Yes, uh, it's a very simple idea and it works well on so many different levels. Um, and the idea is based on this. It, it, the first, the fundamental building block to me is the fact that the market system will not create a job for every willing worker. All right. Uh, we can create plenty of goods and services. It's not as if we have a shortage of houses, but we have homeless people. It's not as if we have, you know, a shortage of food, but we have hungry people. Um, and so the problem is that, and, and to the private sector, labor is a cost. It is not something they want to maximize. So, okay, well, let's decide this. Let's let the private sector do what the private sector wants to do, minimize costs, put in self-checkout lanes, you know, or, or, or whatever else it is, uh, robots and so forth. But let's not leave the job of, of you know, since, since full employment isn't their job, then it's the government's job. And so what we do is we say that anyone who can't find a job in the private sector, don't worry, we have got plenty of social problems that need to be addressed. We, when we run out of social problems, then what a glorious day that will be. Um, but, and of course, at the very top of the list is the existential threat that is climate change. I mean, the private sector is never going to address private, climate change, never. And so what would be so, I, I was just thinking about I think about it a lot. And I, I was walking back from class this morning thinking, somebody could, who's out of work right now could plant a tree. I mean, you know, the, uh, the, the things we could do, clean up neighborhoods, um, 
that there, there are so many, and there's a fantastic book by Pavlina, Pavlina Chern about what is it called? Um, and her job guarantees in the, in the title somewhere. Uh, but uh, she talks all about this. But what we do is we say, okay, private sector, you do all the you know, restaurants and so forth and do all the cost cutting you want. That doesn't matter. Uh, meanwhile, in the public sector, what we do is we guarantee jobs. And because of the way, especially in the United States, uh, we don't have to worry about spending dollars. Uh, we can always finance this. The shortage is resources, not money. Money, even in the private sector, banks make up money. I mean, so it's not like there's a real honest to goodness shortage of money. Um, and here's the great thing now. Oh, but won't that cause inflation? Yes, it would if we kept employing people past the point of full employment, uh, if we kept trying to expand it. But, but the thing about the job guarantee is it automatically stops. You know, if, if this is your amount of, sorry, I'm trying to figure out where my hands are. This is your amount of, of unemployment. And then this is also going to be uh, proportional to how much government spending there is. And so as it clamps down to here, there's still government spending, but the government spending that was necessary to get to here and nowhere else. All right. Uh, now, there's always going to be inflation somewhere. But remember what I said about inflation. Always check to see who's gaining and who's losing before you decide it's good or bad. Um, but the job guarantee is 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 so simple um, and so brilliant. I mean, you know, rebuild infrastructure. There is a major bridge. I don't know if you guys know this across the Mississippi River on Interstate 40 in the U.S. that goes from I don't know, Michael from the West Coast. But I do know that it goes to my in-laws. Uh, in Tennessee. So when we drive from Texas to Tennessee, and we go over this huge bridge over the Mississippi River that you know, been driving over. I went to I went to school at University of Tennessee, driving over it for years. It had an inspection the other day. It was about a month ago. And the inspector got on his cell phone and said, you have got to close the bridge right now. Not a single other car can pass across here. There are cracks in the bridge. Uh, and there's no reason that should ever happen. There's no logical reason. So, so it's, it may be shut for a year. This major bridge, it's, it's, it's at Memphis. This major bridge uh, between Arkansas and Memphis is shut down. Now, there's another bridge south of town, but of course, that, you know, the, the, I saw the other day, the governor of Tennessee was talking on some talk show, talking about how much different industries is saying this is costing them right now. Uh, and I mean, again, you know, Child care, elderly care, um, all these things that could be addressed with a job guarantee. And the pride people would take from we, we are social. My, my view is we are social animals. Um, this whole thing about we live as individuals, you know, and, and that, that, that's a bunch of crap. We, we choose to live as individuals as much as baboons do. They don't. They, they live together in a troop. And, and, and so do we. So we want to contribute. We want to feel like we're valuable to people. Um, and being on unemployment. And being told you're bad because you're on unemployment is not conducive to this. Uh, and, and so I don't know, I could go on and on. I'll, I'll stop there. But that's the basic idea with a job guarantee is let the private sector do what it's good at, lower prices. But let the government do what's moral and right. And that is create jobs for these people who uh, have the willingness to work and we have enough stuff for them. Okay, so... That was a, a, a summary from two American economists. Um, Karen, first, um, what did you think of that? Was that a good summary? And is there anything you want to add to start this conversation? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the, the, probably what a lot of people maybe don't really realise is the idea of the wage floor um, and the job guarantee as a stabiliser. And I think Yeva, you know, uh, reinforces that. 
um, and that also, you know, unemployment essentially means that you're starting off with a zero wage, um, whereas, you know, the uh, job guarantee will um, essentially create a minimum wage. Um, yeah, so uh, John makes a really good point that, you know, taxation equals unemployment. Um, you know, fundamentally, by having a taxation system, you essentially create unemployment. So, you know, the, the private sector cannot be held responsible for, um, you know, it, 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 it's not the private sector's responsibility to create employment. Um, so if you're creating taxation, then you also have the aligned responsibility to ensure that people are able to pay that tax taxation through employment. Okay, great. Um, Cameron, what was your thoughts? Could summary anything you want to add? So I think from a definitely from a kind of policy and macroeconomic perspective, I thought it was a lot of great insight from both of your guests. I think I can't really add much to that. I think it would be from what I want to discuss tonight, obviously I want to take a more policy perspective, which I'll dive more into later on. But I think the two perspectives I like to discuss is from a general policy perspective. Job guarantee as a theory is actually been around, you can say as early as the seventeenth century. It was you know the the right to a guarantee was part of the French constitution, and has been continuously brought up in many government programs and many government policy aims. The problem is how you actually achieve it, and that's where you actually discuss this. And I think, you know, talking about the history of the job guarantee, the big thing I love to discuss is who I, who I absolutely adore is Sidi Tanner uh, Mosul from the uh, civil rights movement in America. And she was, what I'd say, the, the first person to really perceive the macroeconomic perspective and the theoretical perspective of the job guarantee and really put it together. And that's important because, you know, she was America's first ever black economist. She was part of the civil rights movement. She was part of, of bringing unions together within the private sector. And she saw it as pushing for more bargaining power and the protection of labor uh, and organizing and bargaining picket lines and also better treatment of women workers, uh, LGBT workers, for all minority groups. And I think that fundamental underlining of job guarantee of the protection and the, and the strengthening of labor and really trying to uh, get get that grip of the capital of the capital which they work on and, and they should rightfully take position of is really fundamental to to the job guarantee uh, and the other perspective which is a policy we'll go into later on i think it we will we look a lot on labor as on the job seeker but my analysis more recently I've been really keen to look more into what about the service providers? What about the employers? What What's their role in the huge barriers, which is for the job seeker? Because the job seeker, a lot, of people, a lot of governments put a lot of behavioral elements on the job seeker. It's a job seeker who must seek employment. But actually these barriers are not, are actually created often by the employer and the service provider. And I feel like that's an area we can really discuss a lot more on, which I'm, I'm sure we'll discuss on later in the show. Yeah, no, that, that is a really interesting perspective. There's two sides of that coin, isn't there? Um, uh, Karen, one thing I wanted to mention, and, and it was um, something I've heard before kind of levelled at the, the job guarantee, and um, and John kind of touched on it a little bit about this idea of crap jobs. And the job guarantee is just about crap jobs. Hey, we need some trees. It's pouring the rain. Go and plant some trees. I'm sure you've heard this um, th this point before. What 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 do you have to say to that? What type of jobs are we guaranteeing? 
Well, I think, you know, also at the end, John makes a really important point that, you know, if we run out of social problems, that will be a great day. <laughs> so, so you know, and the big problem we've got right now, looming, looming, <laughs> it's the grey rhinoceros that everyone's trying to go, oh, is climate change. So, you know, uh, we, 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 <laughs> we're not running out of social problems fast. We need an awful lot of things to do. I think the, you know, the, the, the concept that it would just be filling holes in the road is, is really misguided. There are so many things that need to happen. And, but it also shouldn't be um, confused with a civil service job that's a permanent civil service job. Because civil, you know, I would say in Scotland, in the UK in general, there are, the, the civil service is quite small in comparison to our Scandinavian neighbours. So we have about 16.3% of our working population involved in the civil service in the UK as a whole. In the Denmark and, and Norway, it's closer to 30%. I think 30% of your workforce working to run the country and ensure that the country runs smoothly seems pretty fair to me. So I would say in an independent Scotland, we should be A, looking to expand our civil service. And then if you have people who the private sector has not managed to provide a job for, then you, you, you know, as a government, you have a responsibility to make sure that there is a job for people. So, you know, looking to help people is, uh, first, what's their skill set? Where do they want to live? Do they want to stay in their local area? Do they have children in a school? You know, do they have an elderly relative that they need to look after and look into? So, you know, they've had a job before, which is perhaps, you know, they've based their whole life in a certain area. What do you just expect them to move to the private sector and move away from their child's school or an elderly relative? You know, I would say the government has a responsibility to make sure that that person stays in that area and uses their skill sets until such a time that perhaps the private sector will then provide a, a job that's perhaps better paid. Um, but, you know, I think the, the, the thing of keeping people within their local area is important as well. And, and we, as you said, we won't run out of jobs, especially if you're looking to address the climate crisis. And, you know, you could list you could list 100 really good jobs in manufacturing and the circular economy and insulation and engineering and all these types of jobs. But I should also emphasise that these are transition jobs. They're not meant to be the job guarantee jobs are not meant to be necessarily permanent. They you know, they might end up being permanent, but really they're supposed to be a transition between losing your job in the private sector and either go into another private sector job or you go into the civil service if there is availability for a job there. So it's not meant to be, you know, um, some sort of fill in for, for the civil service. Yeah. There, as I say, there's lots that of civil make, service jobs that, that make, need to be created. But that would make it quite difficult to have anything other than really simple jobs because you couldn't spend all that time training someone to do something if it's a transitionary job and then they go off and do something else. Does that not lead us back to the kind of um, the, 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 the rubbish job situation then? No, again, I would go back to the point that I made right at the start, which is you would look at that person's skill set and then look at what the needs are in the local community. And both Karen and I envisage this also as something that would... Um, increased subsidiarity in our society, which you and I are both keen on, and I know Cameron is too, that we want to see this controlled at a community council level. We'd like to see our communities more empowered and would like them to say, you know, we need this done. It's not necessarily something that's urgent, um, um, but, you know, it would, it would increase the well-being of our local economy. 
or, or you know make people feel happier in this area if perhaps for example you know we could someone could help build a cycle path here you know so we're looking at things that are small infrastructure projects or there are a host of other things that you could do you know literally you could get people to go and read to elderly people you know these are all things that can improve your community um they but they're not perhaps absolutely necessary the absolutely necessary jobs should be existing you know they, that's your civil service yeah. No, that's, I, that's I, a point. I want to develop from Kieran's point. She made a point about how Norway public sector employment was about 30%. Uh, the Swedish Ring model, which lasts about 40 years um, in Sweden, uh, actually had female uh, public employment at 60%. Um, and that basically collapsed, however, when the Confederation of Professional Employees, which is more of your blue sector workers, eventually pushed the kind of social democratic uh party at the time and the government at the time to basically completely ditch the job guarantee aspect of it which would guarantee employ uh, uh job seekers employment after six months of seeking it so um it, it, there is absolutely if i had absolute doubt that there's room within the public sector to find reasonable jobs because within the right mind model it was union jobs it was unions who put together these jobs for communities uh when it comes to the job guarantee and having crap jobs um, i analyzed uh you know what sort of jobs we'd be looking for and i put down basically three uh, policy values and instruments so it was basically equity it was cost effective effectiveness and dignity now equity was basically are we seeing equality within this program? Are we allowing vulnerable groups to actually access these within the barriers we're seeing currently within the private sector? The second one was cost effectiveness. Now, I, I, I picked cost effectiveness because usually within governments right now, we use the word efficiency. And efficiency is very often used because it can often mean that you can meet your goals at the cost though of giving up um, values. And that could be you have a job guarantee but then you take away the human dignity element of the job guarantee or also actually meeting equality aims. So I put that in there to actually analyze the job guarantee to see if it actually meets the, these values. And the third part was human dignity. Does the job guarantee actually offer the individual human dignity? And this is usually based on the Scottish government's well-being economy, or as we call legal. So would that aspect of the job guarantee meet the legal vision which the Scottish government put forward, which was also largely designed by Professor Joseph Stiglitz. Now, analysing this, the conclusion was all around, yes, it definitely did. And the reason we know this is because models that exist today very clearly show it. Uh, we see within, especially within the Indian model and the Argentinian model, where it was actually designed to help those minority groups. In Argentina, it was designed for young and also uh, disabled and pregnant women and eventually expanded it to the wider communities and right now quite literally millions of Argentinians are actually benefiting from this program which if you compare to other um, you know case studies and investigations policies having millions of people in your program it has a hefty lot of data and a lot of backup for it so we know the evidence is there that it heavily works and these are all these jobs are designed basically to literally build communities it's a building communities but it's building parks they're building centers uh, for for like kids to socialize in and the key part of that as well is you know we could talk about you know people saying it's shit jobs but i think the one thing we want to talk about though is is that commu the community aspect the socialization aspect because having a job is about taking part of society it's about building the foundations of the state we want to see and that requires people to work 
but it's also about people coming together to create that vision and by working together by speaking to each other by building these bridges that is how you do it in the first place and as uh, you know karen pointed out very well we do want this to be based on uh, a community level so community councils would absolutely have the vision to determine what sort of jobs they want to see and they'd work with public sector civil servants and also work with like experts in different industries who can, and also a resource management field to discuss how it's all come together we know this works we know it's very popular the only way to do that though is to get independence that's the first key step to doing that Absolutely. I'd love to come back to that subsidiarity. We've just got a really good question um, from um, Hashbury here. And, and you know, I, th I think you covered that, but I think it's a really good um, question because for, for, for people of kind of my generation and people who have been brought up in this neoliberal world, hey, mate, a job is about doing a job to make something to get paid. That's what a job is. And that's how our society revolves around it. And, and Hashbury, um, who I think is round about, round about my age as well, had asked this question. And, and tell me if you think that's that's kind of where it comes from and, and what you've said is it's just not like that. So, so would, I, would a job so guarantee add or subtract to productivity of the economy or just benefit? Yes, of course it would, add, it would add to productivity. So I'll give you an example. For example, me, I am uh, the way I earn money, I am a personal trainer. So, um, for example, if you have a downturn in the economy, um, a personal trainer is quite a, um, an expensive thing to hire someone as a personal trainer. So if you have someone who's perhaps lost their job, they had a personal trainer and they say to the personal trainer, sorry, I can't, um, I can't employ you anymore. Um, then and perhaps, you know, that personal trainer was maybe working in an area where a lot of the same people were unemployed at the same time. Then your local council uh, should be able to say, OK, well, we know people in this community who could really do with your help you know you we could tell you know some of the elderly people over there you could help teach them some strengthening some stretching all that kind of they're a really good example of then you make those people and i know the the science behind this because i've read up on this obviously i've got an anatomical sciences degree you you make elderly people stronger then they're not going to hospitals so often so you're not going to burden the hospital system so people who are perhaps maybe needing a, an operation faster, we'll get that operation faster. So you can see on a, if you look at it from a wide macroeconomic lens and see the relationships between people and you can see the chain of events that could happen around that, it's very clear on a deeply fundamental level in a successful country, we all need to be doing things for each other and helping each other out. Absolutely. And it's just that real resource, isn't it? It's using people as a real resource and it's not leaving them just on the sidelines there. It's actually being used. And um, we've we've got a we've got a question. Um, um, Kieran, I just want to you because I think you covered it just briefly earlier. Um, so would a job guarantee include a training guarantee? That's our thinking. Sorry, I wanted to let Cameron speak because I just said a lot. So No, yeah. that, that's that's absolutely fine. Um, I'll, I'll maybe jump on that and Kieran. Uh, please feel free to correct me. Uh, but yes, absolutely would. There's absolutely no question about that. Even programs which haven't been fully committed job guarantees have always pretty much included training. And an example I can actually give you is the 2002 Alwa Initiative, which basically hired around 100 employees to try and work within the new Tesco. What it basically did was, it said if you complete now, again, there was some issues with this program. Uh, it wasn't as expansive as I'd like to be and wasn't very optional and didn't give many... Uh, those who went forward in the program enough choice but it did show though that 
they were keen to take part in this program because a it was a form of social security uh, and b they actually had you know eight six weeks of training to take part in and that that were the, the kind of skills they would need and also the employment they need to get into other markets within the economy uh, and after six weeks of training over 90 percent of them maintained within that work workplace for the medium term and that's up to about couple of months to three years and uh, if you're staying within the workplace within three years uh, that's social security for that length amount of time and that was only a couple of weeks as well now we're envisioning different now we're not talking about tesco jobs though for the job guarantee as i said we're trying to build foundations and in our first paper me and karen basically talked about different ideas and the first one we talked about was a land of trees and we basically got that inspiration from Bobby Derman's book imagine a country ideas for a better future and that, it was, I can't remember his name, it was a film director at the time, Mark Cousins, that's it. He said that he envisioned Glasgow, for example, building a forest within the actual city, 800,000 pine trees. Uh, and he was trying to capture sort of vision of like kind of Canada and Finland, basically, the vast amounts of nature within these kind of like city landscapes. Uh, and it's a fantastic idea. And what one of his main points was that not only did it improve uh, education because you're bringing a kid from the Glasgow city area into a forestry area to learn about the kind of you know, the geographical aspects of forestry, it can also build within sort of green domes and foundations of maybe medicine. Also, the idea of having mental health reasons of people accessing that sort of forestry area for escapism. Also, the idea of housing, but also for air pollution levels as well, ecological sustainability in a city like Glasgow and that's the sort of vision we want to see and the idea of you wake up and you see a forest and you can turn to yourself and go that was me I did that with my with my community around me we built a forest we built 800,000 trees in that forest and the foundation it brought forward and look forward to other ideas we also included as well was a nation of art so what about building art centers building a culture and really putting it onto the wall for us to see the kind of nation we want to build looking forward, but also bringing local talent as well. Because a lot of people have amazing local talent who never really get to use it, never get to get that sort of social security within the talent they can bring. Why should they not be rewarded with the talent they have and bring it forward? Because they absolutely have room in society to bring Scots together and to envision that sort of thing we want to see. And also another big aspect as well, which isn't really spoken about enough, but this is what we really want to push forward, was what about rewilding the Scottish Highlands, basically, and taking ownership from a lot of private hands and actually bringing people together to take community ownership and also expanding, for example, the Langholmer site, for example, has absolutely huge scientific value explaining how different wildlife uh, and also growth life expands there and what, how it develops within, with, without human interaction and bringing that those environmental goals into community ownership is absolutely vital so the big key message to anyone who's asking about shit jobs it will only ever be shit jobs if our vision is shit but if we can envision something better envision something that is focused on the social aspects then you will never have shit jobs you'll only have a better country what 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 a great answer, Cameron. Um, um, Kieran, you got anything to add there? Yeah, I think I you know I I just thought about the the idea of the Langholm estate as well. You know, so I said earlier on, really important to keep people in their local communities, especially if they have children at the schools. You know, their whole you know they they have friendships. Their children, they have friendships, and um, the adults as well. 
but equally as well, you know, you could say to someone who's become unemployed and perhaps didn't have all those connections in their community, would you like to help in another community as well? And we can help set you up in another community. They need help with this. And would you be interested in doing this? Just from spending time and finding out what people's interests are as well as their skill sets as well. So, yes, it might be a low-skilled job, but, you know, if it's someone that thinks, I'd really like to get out of the urban atmosphere, do you have anything, you know, more in a more rural aspect? And we say, yeah, we, we could we could help you with that. So, you know, again, it's just down to the limits of our imagination about how we can improve our country and how we utilise our real resource, which is the people of Scotland. They're the really important real resource that we've got are the people. Karen, how, how much does dignity play a part in this? Oh, hugely. The whole the whole the whole aspect of well, how, first of all, we need to define how do we define dignity? And I actually used uh, the Scottish government's legal definition of human dignity, and basically on this on the sense that does it actually? Well, there's three three elements to this. I, I love this because it, it breaks it down so very well. So in dignity, first of all, uh, the policies that must be put, we need to put forward for the job guarantee, first, it needs to actually mitigate the scarring effects of those who are underemployed or unemployed, right? Because those who are in long term often struggle with physical and mental health issues. That's, that's one of the major problems we have right now. So any policy we put forward has to deal with that. And as long as the social, social folks in social uh, factors, that, sh that would be applied, especially seeing as it's, it's employment your best match their previous skills. The second is about also updating skills because one thing we need to remember is labor markets are always developing. There's always new skills, there's always new, new technology, there's always something coming forward which we constantly, I mean, you know, we all we all work, we all get job training once a year, every couple of months, depending which industry we're in. We're always being told about a new, a new program being introduced, a new form of regulations coming forward. We're constantly going forward with that. And as long as the job guarantee continuously updates people on these skills and talents, then that means if they want to transition to the private sector, they're already ready for them. And that means those going into the private sector, employers go, well, you're already trained up, so I'm gonna take you in pretty quickly, actually. And the third one being is about well-being. And that is based about colleagues creating a friendly environment. And this is one that already the Scottish government is trying to build from the public sector. But I think the key thing, and I've mentioned it a lot, so I won't say it too much again, but it's about choice. And basically to create that social relation with colleagues to create a friendly environment, it's about one, people coming together to build the vision they see within their community. And two, the kind of vision put together also means that they probably have a lot in common as well. If you have a vision, for example, 800,000 trees in Glasgow, and many people come together who agree on that, they probably also have cross reasons as well to discuss on green policy, on ecological sustainability. And once you create those shared co combinations and shared interests, suddenly the social aspect becomes far more stronger. So those are three factors when I talk about human dignity as well. There's also the Equality Act as well, which obviously is already a fundamental part about getting people into there, but that's already being quite enhanced. And if we ever want to put and push that forward, the job guarantee is absolutely a policy tool to push that forward to show it in real time working really well. Brilliant. Um, Karen, you're standing for um, election in Aberdeen, so um, for the, for the for the SNP, and and, and let's say there was a, an independent Scotland and a job guarantee scheme. Could you see this type of vision that that, that Cameron's identified in our, our um, uh, um, 
uh, our viewer has identified for Glasgow. What could we do with Aberdeen and the kind of transition away from from oil and gas? I mean, what potentials there, marrying what we could do with this, you know, labour force who really wants to take part in that? Yeah, well, actually, the wards that I'm I'm going forward for is really high unemployment and has some poverty, you know, a number of poverty markers, you know. So, you know, we could do something about that. Absolutely. I mean, I can certainly see, you know, as um, someone who's gone backwards and forwards to Aberdeen, I could see a lot of things that we could do in Aberdeen. So, yeah, there's no shortage of jobs there. But can I also bring the perspective to this from a female perspective, particularly? So, you know, for me, when I came across this policy, um, I, I thought, yeah, I can I can really see why this is so important. So from a from a female perspective, generally, it's women who are abused by men. I know that's a, that's a generalization. But, um, you know, they if they're in a relationship with someone who's violent and they have children, then they're very precarious. And, you know, I think our society has been geared towards precarity. You know, I think the, the many people in government imagine that the, this precarity creates this pool of unemployment and then the people in the private sector can always extract from this pool. But that's a nonsense because that pool that exists very rarely actually fills the private sector with the with the employees that it wants. And frequently the private sector is actually going to uh, headhunt pe other people who are employed. So frequently the people who are unemployed for, say, a year, they then find it harder and harder to become unemployed, to become employed. So this idea of a pool, that's that's nonsense. It's not doesn't work. Right. So. Um, but coming back to the female perspective, you know, if you know there's a job guarantee and you know that they will provide childcare, you can leave that violent partner. You have that choice. It gives you that choice to do that. And an example, when I was um, uh, studying at university, um, you know, I just graduated in 2015. I had to find, uh, I worked as a, a chambermaid. I worked as a waitress. Um, and one of the jobs that I waitressed, I very quickly realised that the, the restaurant manager was a psychopath. Um, he, it turned out that he was stealing from the owners and he was a very, very nasty man. But you have three months you have to find work for when you're doing a degree. Now, that there's a whole issue there where why is why are universities set up this way, where we have a whole three months where we're trying to find work. Um, I, you know, I was lucky I lived near St. Andrews. There's a holiday uh, business there, the industry there. So I was able to find work. That's not going to be the case for everyone. You know, students should have a job guarantee. If you're going to continue to have these huge breaks, you know, in between year one, year two, which I think is wrongheaded for a start. But if you're going to have that, then those students should have a job guarantee. And I should be able to say to the people at the job centre, this man that I'm working for is making my life miserable. And um, can you help me get something else? Because I want to work, I want to make money, but I don't want to be abused. And, so you know, hopefully it could be someone putting the, their hand up your skirt every day, you know, which is something that you'll know from the Me Too movement. It's something that women have put up for, for years and years. <laughs> so, 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 so in a sense, it, it could get rid of crap jobs. 
because you know the job guarantees and rather than offering crap jobs it could get rid of crap jobs because there is an opportunity for people to move out of jobs that are not happy and are not treated well and have no dignity into jobs that are um i've got a question cameron um i'll i'll, I'll bring you on to answer this one but karen if you want to answer it just let me know um so would there have to be a compulsory element to take a placement with a job guarantee oh god no absolutely 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 not no um this is actually the other way around. When I was looking at, when I was, I was making a bottleneck model basically for the job guarantee, and it's something I'm going to put forward in our next paper. And basically, I was looking at what is the decision-making process in seeking employment, and the one, of the very first things which demotivate people going for employment is the compliance for seekers, especially those who are within the welfare system who who very much rely on social security based on maybe disability or physical and mental. And the very fact that they have to comply to go through this process, which by the way, incredibly administrative by the way, it can take weeks, it can take about a month until you get some sort of reply from any public process, especially if the DDLP involved as well, who are trying to basically screw you from behind with your social security, is absolutely demotivating and can almost destroy you mentally, mentally and physically. And I've it's seen that personally of course. Cameron, it's designed like that. That's what it's supposed to do. It, it, it is, it, well, it I is, mean, absolutely. Yeah. And the thing is as well is, is the DWP look at things purely from a spreadsheet and have absolutely no clue about, I mean, I'll tell you one thing right now. I have a colleague who uh, who basically went through absolute hell with DWP, Stephen Kerr uh, had to get personally involved because she nearly died. She nearly died. And despite that, Stephen Kerr, after getting involved in this case and knowing the failures of DWP, continued to repeat the, the progress and the achievements of the policy efficiency. Again, going back to efficiency, of a DLP because you can determine anything with that, with that word efficiency would, would actually just disguises the absolute insane suffering that mm. goes on. Uh, and again, I, I, I don't even want to get into the long administ administration processes because that alone can, people can wait forever. And by the time they get something, something pops up, you find that often, quite often people have just completely lost any motivation within it as well. But I'll, I'll break it in further. I'll break it down further because, again, I, I that was purely from a job seekers perspective. But if you look at the problems of the employee perspective and the service provider perspective, uh, it becomes absolutely more insane. First of all, if you're a, a service provider, so you're trying to connect the employer and the seeker together, uh, you work within a competitive environment. That means that you're not going to be sharing information with other service providers as well. That means you're going to be competitive in that entire environment to the point where other sectors will be holding off jobs you know, because they were not because they want to make sure that they're getting the payments because they get a share percentage of payments from employers to get people involved within that. So it's profit seeking, basically. So job service providers are basically profit seeking to get people involved. And the second of all, as well, is people who are seeking these sort of jobs, they're, they, they lack a lot of education when job seeking because job seeking is actually quite hard. You have to try and match your skills with a lot of industries that actually, you, on, on the front head, you think would match your skills, but actually they, they seek a lot more uh, skills with, without your boundaries. Or, in fact, that actually you're overqualified and actually they're worried that actually in the, in the end you're asking for higher bargaining. You'd be asking for a higher pay. And that puts Cameron, I'll just bring in a comment there from, from, from Mandy, which, which you can see on the screen there. Um, you know, so... Uh, and. And and that yeah. you know, 
we, we know that that is we know that that is the issue. Mandy, thanks so much for sharing that. We really appreciate it. And um, I wonder, um, Cameron, just with that um, compulsory element, maybe behind the question was always the well, what happens if the person doesn't take a job? I think that might be where we were where we were getting to on that. Yeah. Do you want to answer that one, and then Karen, I've got a couple a couple for you from from the comments. Yeah. So in regards to if you don't take a job, you don't take a job. The only thing we actually uh, removed in regards to the savings of the job guarantee modeling we did was job seeker allowance because the seeking aspect of it was already there. But there's no way in any our in our modeling, there's no way at all that you'd be complied to find a job and you will not lose any other benefits at all from not seeking a job guarantee. If you don't seek a job, that's absolutely within the job guarantee program absolutely fine it's entirely your choice in fact there may be reasons behind the fact that you don't seek, seek a job and that's not really for the state to push you against anyway so absolutely yeah, absolutely there's no compliance it's the other way around you wouldn't lose any benefits if you're not seeking a job that's entirely your decision and it should be fully respected Great. Well, um, Hashbury, hopefully that's answered your question there. Um, a, a couple of comments, Kieran, I just wanted to highlight to you. Um, Red has said, typical boss, uh, when you were saying your issues that you had <laughs> you had earlier. Um, Mandy's got a comment here, which I'll give you a few seconds just to read and, and then comment on. Really useful thing. Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I, the other the other thing I wanted to bring up as well, you know, I had uh, uh, I had a friend a, a few years ago in Glasgow. He'd been long term unemployed, and they were pushing him in towards working for um, the um, Citizens Advice Bureau, and he was completely unsuited to that. He had been a coder, and you know, he was a really smart guy. And I think they thought really smart guy will get him to help other people. But he couldn't cope with being in a workplace with lots of people. He needed he needed a job that he could do in a quiet place, and you know, so there was no, you know, this was someone who was actually deeply intelligent and could have really helped people in with his particular skill sets. But they just tried to make a square peg go into a round hole, yeah. and no, no one gets helped anywhere with that. You know, it's it's so we we need a proper service where people are looking at people's skill sets and saying what's available. And trying to match that properly, that because that's just not happening. And, and I would say, you know, with technology, that's not difficult to do. But the systems that we're using at the moment, as I said earlier, I think they're designed to make this, you know, Mandy, I'm sure you're experiencing this, that everything that they're doing is almost saying to you, look, it's better that you just go and take the worst job imaginable than going through this process. And, and I think a, even a whole scale change in the way that we do benefits wouldn't have any of these extra benefits that the, the job guarantee would have. And I'm really interested, fascinated, actually, about this idea of the community deciding on the jobs and not the government, the central government saying this. Who, who, which one of you two kind of wants to explain that a little bit better and explain why that would be such a benefit to the individual and also to the community? Well, I just think that it's it's it would be, we see the job guarantee idea as a way of increasing subsidiarity. And who better to decide the jobs that need to be done in a community are the people that live in that community? The same way that we want Scottish independence. Who better to run Scotland than people that live in Scotland? Yeah. I think 
I'll maybe de uh, develop from that because it's worth also looking at the role beyond the community. And the main thing that's worth pointing out, as, as Karen said, it's community-led. So the question is, how do we serve that that entire process? So uh, we we basically came up with others within Waterman Scotland. Basically, three bodies have to work around the community. So the first one is basically a local employment service. So this is basically going to use the infrastructure of already existing job centres within public service, basically. And that would basically it would basically work as a sort of jobs reserve. So this, those are basically jobs given on short notice for those who are seeking it to offer that sort of uh, you know to offer that sort of social security and basically that basically work within local locally. So basically look for local jobs, local issues that are created. And it also wouldn't just be job guarantee jobs though. Local employment services also offer private sector jobs and public sector jobs within that too. So it's not just going to be just purely for the job guarantee center. It's going to be for all jobs that are available because it's also worth having the choice to where you go into. Uh, and also as well, it's worth noting as well that we're working with uh, third third uh, third party groups. We're working with industry specialists. We're working with people who are job developers, counselors, researchers, auditors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So again, these those within the local public service will be working with the local communities to make that vision happen. The second one is also going to be the kind of regional employment networks. Now, in my mind, these networks would be basically linked, and this is also done helps another friend who I've lost his name off the top of my head. We'll link later on. Uh, the REM boundary is basically the regional employment network would be linked with the Scottish NHS board. So there's 14 of them basically. So it'll be in line with already existing infrastructure. What they would do basically is they'd work with communities within the set within the region and go, okay, so what are your visions? What what kind of stuff do you want? And what we will do is one, calculate what kind of resources we have. And if we have those resources, where will they come from? How will we move them about from different uh, REN regions, basically, to make it happen? Uh, and two, uh, they would also bring experts on board too from certain industries to discuss with those in the community and also with the local employment services go, right, so you want to build a local wind farm. Well, I, I come from the wind farm industry. I can tell you that based on your area, here's how many wind farms you can build. Here's how much it'll probably cost. Here's how many jobs you'll create. And here's how long these, this project will last. And here's how many long-term jobs you can maybe make if that's something you're seeking. So that's the role of the regional employment networks. The regional employment networks gets that data and puts together for, for those boards and establishes the link between local employment service and communities. And then there's the kind of big agency. There's the Scottish Employment Agency. And that basically is with, within the overall um, government program. That will be on a national level, which will be basically, A, make sure that every single REN, so regional employment networks and local employment service are meeting their goals. And B, make sure that the accounting that the Scottish government would give, a sovereign monetary uh, Scottish government would give, make sure it's enough to meet those jobs. Uh, and it would make sure that, that, that those payment schedules are set by the Scottish Employment Agency to make sure that there's no tinkering about from the central bank or the Scottish government making sure they're not paying enough. They basically set how much labour and the resources are needed. And it also, on a national level, look at the flow of labour. But again, the key thing is, though, is that these bodies are looking around the vision of the community, though. And they work with third sector groups, the NHS, academic bodies, and one academic body worth mentioning is the Training and Employment Research Unit at Glasgow University. Very key if they were to work with the Scottish Employment Agency. And again, making sure that the community and people's oriented objectives are met. That's, so these three bodies serve the community, not the other way around. Brilliant.
Uh, okay, um, Cameron, I'm going to give you I'm going to give you a little break um, there, and Karen, I'm going to I'm going to ask you that I'm going to ask you this one because um, that all you know I'm 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 taking on a different persona here, but that all sounds fantastic, right? Um, and 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 Karen has said uh, she's got a brilliant question, which I, which I'll put on I'll, I'll put on screen, and I'd like us to kind of Karen, I'd like you to address that kind of as kind of as directly as you can because that's a really a really good question. To, to ask and there's two parts to that question so do you want to kind of break them both down how much will it cost and do we need independence for this to work so yes the um the cost actually cameron probably would give he's he'll remember the figures better than i do but the, of course that will fluctuate depending on how much how how successful the private sector is um at both retaining people and uh, and employing people so the, the job guarantee will fluctuate with the the success of the private sector. So that that's that's the fundamental thing there. Independence, yes, we we need to have fiscal and monetary sovereignty to really put this into place. Absolutely, yes. So not just independence, but also our own money. Would this work? Under We're not independent unless we have our own money. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I know, I know, we, I know, we agree with this. But if you're looking at this policy, if if we introduce this under kind of sterilisation or under devolution to an extent, would this work without our own money being monetary sovereign? I think you know, Cameron and I brought, brought, both brought the uh, policy to conference that we would have a pilot because we recognise that it it will be it will require uh, money and. The Scottish government is currency limited. Yeah. Okay, Cameron, on the on, on, on the cost then. Okay. So you've got the stats uh, and I, I I'm gonna try and find them as I'm questioning, but here's what I remember top of my head, basically the stats. First of all, on a, a basic point for developed countries, all costs calculated from a small developed country to a big country like the US have always ranged between one to three percent of GDP. And that's been calculated multiple times, and it's done especially by Bill Mitchell as well. He's done a whole book on like the fall of full employment from uh, from a policy perspective. So it, you know, that's how well he's calculated. And that's why I recommend first of all. So what we did was when we were doing the modelling, uh, because labour market data had been massively skewed by COVID nineteen, especially when uh, furlough was almost ended by uh, UK government in twenty in twenty twenty one in September. Uh, labor market fluctuations are massive, so it was really hard to calculate that based on that. So what we did was, uh, based on this paper, because I was also trying to compare those costs of UBI as well, uh, we based on 2019 figures. And basically from what I remember putting together was, at the time, uh, pre-pandemic, we had about 96,000 people who were underemployed. If those who don't know what underemployed is, it's those who effectively are working, they're in a job, they're getting paid. But it's not work they enjoy. It's not an industry that they are actually part of, or doesn't meet their skills. Was that and in what, Scotland? Ninety-six thousand. That's, that's in Scotland. So all the data I'm referencing now is Scottish-specific, basically. Uh, so that's ninety-six thousand people underemployed in 2019, and on top of that, you had about two hundred eleven thousand people as well who were basically um, unemployed, full-up unemployed, basically. So that's ninety-six thousand people um, who were underemployed and 211,000 people who are unemployed. So in total, that gives you uh, overall, um, in terms of a 90% participation rate in the job guarantee, we have about 
286,000 people taking part. That's our assumptions. We're assuming 90% of people will take part. But again, as uh, Kieran's pointed out, uh, as Kieran point has pointed out, uh, if only 50% people take, get involved, then the cost will be uh, in scale 50%. So actually, the more people take involved, the more expensive it is, but less people get involved, the more the least expensive it is. Now, on that point, we want the, we had the idea of paying people £9.50 an hour. So £9.50 an hour, uh, just above at the time of the living wages of £9.30, because we want to go above that as well. So that means that if we're paying that wage with that amount of people, uh, overall, we are paying just about, in terms of those who are unemployed, £1.5 billion, And for those who are underemployed, £3.07 billion. Pounds. So that overall is a cost of £4.6 billion. Now, that figure of £4.06 billion, uh, which is at a time 2.2% of GDP, it also takes two returns in. Those two returns are scrapping job seekers allowance, because we're no longer seeking jobs because there's a jobs reserved there that we provided. That saves at the time £172 million. And then the increased tax returns and national insurance, and we're not talking about uh, you know the scandalous criminal tax and national insurance hikes we're getting Christmas, and we're talking about pre previous rates as we'll get just now. That's about half a billion. So I think at the time it was like £580 million basically at the time. Now, we also want to be aware that there's infrastructure costs. So we put £164 million in there too. Uh, and also there's also a increase in uh, GDP. And that is just about 0.5%, uh, but also in GVA, uh, which is a big part of the WeGo economy, because we're talking about like uh, you know the actual increase in terms of gross value added, that's about half a million as well, just over half, I think it's like 600 million pounds. So a lot of numbers there, but in total, that would cost, in 2019 figures, 4 billion pounds. 4 billion pounds to basically help reach full employment as a service, and to offer social security to those who need it to quite literally hundreds of thousands of scots and that four billion pounds you may think is actually that big and it really isn't because 2.2 percent of gdp and that is equivalent to what you get right now in westminster when it comes to their vast amount of military spending so they can spend on uh, the, you know the, you know, the military industry where actually why don't you spend on actually getting people employed and having you know a socially inclusive form of employment that meets their community needs basically so overall it's honestly it's insignificant compared to the social uh, uh social gains you have yeah and that's the point that i wanted to make is is that um you've had a stab at the net cost and all too often we talk about the cost of something the cost of this would be five billion but we don't look at the net costs which are what are all the benefits and you've taken you know you've taken out some of those but over a longer term we would be looking at the impact that this has made in the communities in terms of well-being and also people's health and their happiness and, and these are all the things that have really got to be calculated when we're looking at an actual cost because it's really easy to calculate the monetary cost but when we don't look at the net benefits and, and get that net cost so overall you know you could say actually over over a medium term this would actually not be costing us anything at all to kind of yeah. provide this dignity to, yeah. to these amount to, 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 to these people absolutely and what sorry i'll just be very i'll be very quick uh karen the one thing about our model is our model assumed everybody will be working full-time but in actuality and as, as karen pointed out earlier as well you students are going to work full-time because they actually have an education they need to focus on and actually if a large percentage of those who are getting involved in employment are actually working part-time suddenly that four percent the four billion pound figure or the 2.2 percent figure of 
GDP cost, as it goes down quite significantly, it's hard to assume how much of that would be uh, in terms of part-time employment. So we just went for a more conservative cost of full-time. So actually, we can't really be accused of actually underestimating the cost because actually we're assuming everyone's working full-time as well. So honestly, in my personal opinion, it'd be less than $4 billion and less than 2.2%. But uh, Karen, I'll let you uh, go to the point you're trying to make there. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, earlier on, I gave that example of a personal trainer who become unemployed and, and the and the wider macroeconomic effects of them perhaps helping in an elderly people's home and how that would. But the then flip that on its other side is, you know, if that personal trainer is then staying at home, not doing anything, then feeling depressed because they're not having contact with other people, because generally we're pretty social creatures. We need to be with other people most of the time. Um, not everyone, but, you know, the vast majority of people. So that in and of itself, again, is another cost saving for the state. Because, again, what I really want to emphasize as well, countries are not businesses and businesses are not always working for the benefit of a country. You know, it, you know, as a, if you're in government, you've got to be working for the benefit of the country. And we've we've got to make sure that every citizen is as fulfilled as they can be. They're you know, and they're they're also contributing to society as much as they can do, and in the best way that's right for them and for society. Uh, I mean, I, I've learned a lot tonight because this isn't an area I've I've looked in in detail. I mean, I really like the the kind of macro and not uh, macroeconomic element of this in the sense that we're taking away monetary injections of money into the economy you know we're not buying bonds we're not printing money we're actually saying to people it's through a fiscal stimulus if we want four billion into the economy we're going to pay people money meaningful jobs it's going to people who are probably you know towards the the lower end of the um, income bracket to, to a large degree whereas another way of injecting money into the economy is to inflate assets and push that money into the economy who are the wealthiest in the economy so so this type of approach is a brilliant way of of injecting money into the economy to not only the people who will use it but fundamentally the people who need it. So I think there's so many kind of layers to, to, to this to this um, to, to this policy. I'd like to finish with just a where are we likely to be now that we've had this trial um agreed at conference and you know let's imagine hopefully it's not too far a step for us all to imagine that we're independent in a, in a, in a couple of years time where does this policy move and, and what impact does it have which which one of you wants to start that and then i'll make sure the other person has a has a chance to finish karen you go first um well i'm just going to say that you know cameron is still working on the second part of this and really that's <laughs> how we're going to make it actually really happen um, so you know, if if I'm elected, then uh, you know I'm I'm going to be back, you know, working with Cameron and thinking about how we could actually make this happen. Um, so yeah, um, what do you think, Cameron? Uh, I think you've actually you just nailed it. Uh, as much as I can sit here and throw numbers at you and throw policy theories and goals at you, actually, it's only going to work if uh, we actually get so many different people from different industries, different backgrounds, different groups to come together and actually say, you know, hey, I've got an idea about how this could work because I've had this experience and go, actually, I have a concern, but actually, from my perspective, here's how you can maybe fix that concern. And it's about people coming together uh, and I hope, I hopefully, you know, after the May elections, me and Karen will be fighting where the, where the 
where it will happen, what happened in Sterling, what happened in Aberdeen, and I hope it happened in Sterling, so I'll be fighting Karen to make that happen here. But but as, as Karen says, people like Karen as well, are, and politicians who are really seeking not full employability, but full employment, those who are seeking those policies, we need to get on the stage. And then we need to connect them with grassroots movements and also with industry experts and, and communities and put it all together. That's how you do it. It's about building a stage for absolutely everyone to create that platform. And honestly, what excites me, I'm going to go a bit nerdy again. In uh, policy and theory, we have this thing called the uh, window of opportunity. So how much of an opportunity exists to make this policy happen? Uh, when it comes to comparing two legislators, uh, Westminster and Holyrood, the window of opportunity theory very clearly shows that for progressive policies, the foundation of that is far more likely to happen, not just in the Holyrood as a whole, but within an independent Scotland, with the way our democratic structures work in terms of getting people together and discussing different, uh, discussing different motions, discussing different, uh, different conferences, and, dis and getting people to put through legislation, compared to what we have a very regressive, very backwards, and almost at a very centralised, I'm not going to say dictatorship, I'm not going to exaggerate, but heavily centralised uh, parliament in the, down south that is very, very, very quickly marginalising big parts of our society. So that's there's two things to it out to overall. It's getting independence and it's also bringing communities together with everyone to build it as one country. And 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 that, that that's great. Really, really good summary from both of you. I think policies like this are incredibly important because of the way that we can show that an independent Scotland will be different from what we have at the moment. And, and my kind of continual concern is that when we become independent, we just become this Westminster, this London, UK light. And I think we need policies like this that say, not only is this a really good idea, but this could not happen under the current structure, um, and not just not not just economic, but political structure. So I think there's a huge importance on this as a policy. And I think um, Kieran and I have been really lucky, Cameron, you were able to join us uh, for this. I'll see if there's any final comments. Um, yeah, we've just got a, 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 a couple of comments there around um, oh, I think just how difficult things are, things are at the moment. And um, thanks very much for joining us, uh, Cameron. Um, uh, until next week, um, when we have our next episode of our Small Nation series, and we're looking at Wales, and I'm definitely going to ask a question now. I won't go before you finish, Karen. I'm definitely going to ask a question about the job guarantee to our audience, to our um, two professors next week who are speaking about the Welsh economy. Karen, do you want to finish us off? This I just, I, there's something I'm, quite important that I just want to say before we finish is that there has been a survey on this as a policy, and it's incredibly popular both across the right and the left. So if there's a policy that can help Scottish independence happen, we think it's this one. Yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Fantastic. Thanks very much, uh, Cameron, for, for, for joining us. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.